Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 334. Thank you for tuning in. Um, I'm joined today by Dame Baptiste. We had a wonderful chat um, last week now. Yeah, I've been a fan of Dame for ages. I went on his Dame Baptiste Questions Everything podcast probably a couple of years ago now. And I've been meaning to have him back on mine for a while. And lockdown is making a lot of guests that we've previously not been able to schedule all come together beautifully. So yeah, it's a really good chat. Before I get into it, um, you'll hear a lot of podcasts on Acast are mentioning that there's a new donate button on podcast pages so you can contribute to the podcast and chip in and that kind of thing. Um, I'm really happy with the money I already make off advertising. I know you probably get bored sitting through the adverts, but I appreciate every one of you who sits through the adverts and those who are over on patreon.com slash scribiuspip. So I don't want to, to, to push that for my podcast, but I'd love to push it for another podcast. So I'm going to try and remember to do that each week. It's all different podcasts on the Distraction Pieces Network. And the first up, I mean, number one, I just recommend going and listening. It's called Mum and Mama. And it's one of my oldest mates, Amy Bullman. I'm godfather to her daughter, um, you will have seen both of her daughters in our, our fancy dress day out pictures. Um, it's Amy Bullman and her friend Harry, and they have loads of amazing guests. And it's it's really good. I'm not a parent, but if it's obviously, I'd imagine if it's a parent, it's the best podcast in the world ever to listen to. But if you're not, it's still really engaging. If you're an uncle or an aunt or a godparent, there was an episode recently. Let me get what was the guest name. It was fantastic. It proper blew me away. As you will have heard from dr- drunk cast and stuff, I'm not a fan of being nice to my mates, but I sent Amy um, a message to say what an amazing episode it was. Sorry, I'm trying to f- find it now. I, sh- I should have prepared this. Yeah, they recently had Joanna F- Fortune on. F- 15-minute parenting with Joanna Fortune. It's an hour-long episode. And I recommend it whether you're a parent or not, because I just learned loads of really good tips from that one. So yeah, go and give them a listen. And if you like it, consider using the tip tip button. Obviously, you know, the tip button helps everyone, particularly in these weird times. And it's a one-off thing. But there's a lot of smaller podcasts who are doing this just because they're so passionate about it. And obviously, you know, I know this because I did my podcast for over a year without earning a penny and a podcast every week takes a lot of work. So consider supporting a few of your favorite podcasters if you have the funds. Obviously, these are bizarre and uncertain times for everyone. So it's far from a priority. But yeah, my recommendation for this week is Mum and Mama. Give them a listen if you like it. Maybe sling them a little donation. Because, uh, I, I mean, add to the fact that they're single parents. It's even more tough in these tough times. Anyway, that's enough of that rambling. On with the podcast. As said, I was really pleased to get Dane Baptiste on. We go straight in. The amount of subjects that we cover is mad. And you'll hear really early on why I wanted Dane on. He speaks on things he has educated himself on, rather than just speaking on things that come up, if that makes sense. I've only ever heard... Dane talk wonderfully and in an informed manner rather than just rambling on with opinions. So yeah, he's a great guy to talk to. Let's get on with the podcast. This is episode 334 of the Distraction Pieces podcast.
I'm here today with Dane Baptiste. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm very good. Uh, all the better for hearing your voice, uh, which still sounds relatively sane, given yeah. uh, current climates. But uh, I'm good, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Obviously, I've got a long list of plans of things I want to talk to you about. As said, we're in mad times, man. It's, it seems like, uh, you know, when stuff's going bad and everyone always says, oh, comedians will have a lot to make jokes about, though. Well, the comedians can't gig at the moment, so it's left to yeah, podcasters exactly. to have exactly. constant... All the podcasters have more material than they can fucking... Or than oh, they are qualified to talk about, but... <laughs> exactly. It's the new, it's the, it's the new stand-up. It's, it's like, you know, it's the new stand-up. It's the new journalism as well. Yeah. Uh, I, think it's, it's, I think it's a unanimous sentiment that people are very uh, cynical about mainstream media, particularly uh, tabloid and, uh, yeah, broadsheet press. So podcasters, where they get the real stuff from, this is where people curate and... Uh, we kind of aggregate all of the real information and that's how you find out what really happened. So, so important. Completely. Well, uh, before I get into my list, again, I planned all the stuff I wanted to chat about last night. It's always loose, always fluid. And obviously, uh, we've been talking about are you coming on for a while because I came on yours about a year ago. Which is great. But that's you did well. an Instagram post uh, this morning that I really enjoyed. So I wanted to start by talking about that. It was about... Um, sex workers and the yeah. demonization of sex workers despite the fact that we're in a time when people are rightfully fighting for women's right both cis and trans um yeah. it's still sex work is still an area that's demonized by religion by society yeah. by snarky comments of people in lockdown saying oh i might start an only fans and and, yeah, and, yeah. and stuff Absolutely. like that when it's a legit industry so let's let's discuss that a bit i loved your post if you want to ah, yeah thank you very much man it's just yeah it, it's down to a theory whereby where you know um i guess i get my catalyst for doing all this introspective research in terms of like affairs of the heart and uh, you know issues of sex and stuff um because i felt like prior to my first big breakup I would probably regard some of my sentimentality as quite chauvinistic, yeah. even if it was well-intentioned and, you know, a lot of areas of toxic masculinity. And uh, I just, after experiencing heartbreak and after a woman broke my heart, I found a newfound respect for women because of the fact that, you know, heartbreak is something that women uh, shoulder all the time mm. and are nowhere near as expressive about it. And, uh, you know, when you look at things that women go through, their heartbreak in terms of whether it's the end of a relationship, even the termination of a child, like, we expect them to get back on that horse and not relay or recant that trauma in the most intimate of settings. Yeah. And I've always found it mad where it's like men, you know, a large part for cisgender heterosexual men, a large part of our uh, existential pursuits end with having sex with a woman. Yeah. And yet you can't handle the conversation about if a woman's menstruating or has discharge or, you know, issues of sex work or sexual trauma, despite the fact that 80% of women experience one form of sexual trauma or another by the time they're like 19. Yeah, and I was, and I say this because like I got seven aunts. On average, they all have two daughters each. I was the first male born in my generation of cousins and family members. Yeah. So I guess I've had the privilege of seeing the other side of the uh, conversation when men are very laissez faire about breaking up with women and all the treatment of them. I've seen what the uh, ramifications of that are. So Amazing. definitely changed my perspective. And yeah, just after doing the research and uh, you know spending up, and comedy's obviously been very helpful for me meeting people from very varied walks of varied walks of life. But, you know, I guess I, all the research I was doing is kind of like, it's just a strange thing that, uh, you know, anyone who would consider themselves a feminist would have any adverse views to the idea of sex work. 
given that it's a well-known and accepted maxim that prostitution is the oldest profession in the world. Mm-hmm. So then by that token, it means that the first people that were in a workforce were prostitutes. Yeah. So before we had ideas of feminism or Abrahamic religion or any of the framework in which our society is built on, it means that women were the first employees if they were the first professionals. So it means that prostitutes have represented the female f- feminist in terms of the workforce before there was even a workforce. Mm. So that's number one. Yeah, yeah, number yeah. two, number two, it's kind of like, you know, however you feel, in, and I'm speaking, I guess, in uh, philosophical terms, the womb is basically God's power on earth because that's what creates life within our society as human beings. Yeah. That means women have the power of God. We know that men just want to fuck all the time, therefore, <laughs> and, and, and have our, our orgasm or copulate, and when a man comes, he's finished because technically, like I said, philosophically speaking, he's touched the face of God. Yeah. You know, you've had that experience in terms of creation because that's why we have sex to procreate. You've had your orgasm as a man, and that's probably why men go cold and fucked up after they come because you've touched the face of God, so no other physical sensation is really going to rival it. So you're just like, don't touch me. Because now you're now now after that release of endorphins and dopamine and that physical gratification, now you're returning to your mortal coil. And I actually believe that's the reason why you have people like incels because then they go masturbate on the internet. Then they come. Now they feel the shame of being by themselves because it's gratifying and not satisfying. And they've given over power to this woman on the internet who's been able to sexually entice them, but they can't be rewarded with the physical gratification. Now they're resentful about it and they've got this post-masturbatory shame and they blame this woman for it. Because men, that's a part part of the masculinity, toxic masculinity we deal with, is that for most of us who aren't in the 1%, our uh, masculinity... And our, I guess our ability to dominate patriarchally, we don't do that because if you're the average lay, lay person, you're not in politics, you're not a head of industry. So most of the time we assert our manhood through our penises. Mm. So if we are robbed of that power because women's sexuality is more powerful, then we feel we feel kind of, I guess, inadequate. And then we have this system of oppression. So for me, it's like most of the time when men are acting out their frustrations and their fears, women are usually at the brunt of that. And prostitutes are normally on the front line when men are doing evil shit. Yeah. Most serial killers, their victims start off normally prostitutes. Yeah. You know, most rapists or abusers, they're these. So essentially, we give over our power, this idea of modesty and I suppose refinement and servitude to God in the form of like nuns and stuff, and they serve God. But really, if prostitutes are giving men access to see the face of God without any other ramifications, then really they are the real nuns of this planet. Because what maybe a lot of feminists or any woman that's in any kind of familial or social structure with other men don't understand is that these women and trans women, they're keeping the evil of men at bay. Some of you don't understand. Your marriage works because your husband can go to prostitutes. Mm. Like, your husband will come in and hate you because he can let that out on prostitutes. So essentially, these women are the front line of feminism. They have seen the full maximum brunt of the evil that men do. They have been at the complete behest and are always the most vulnerable when any patriarchal legislation takes place. Yeah. And essentially they do all of this, but they provide the worst of us with the best thing that they want. Yeah. And they get no reward for it. And they get no protection. Because no logically, if they're at the front line, then they should be the first rather than the last to be Absolutely. thought about. And Absolutely. I think a big problem is in the UK, we've got such a taboo over sex, and in a lot of, of the Western world and many different yeah. areas, we've got such a taboo out of sex that over sex that we... Because we won't talk about it, we don't understand the nuances of it. And things like sex worker, that covers full-service sex worker. It covers online cam girl. It covers strippers. Anyone who chooses to earn from that, what it doesn't cover 
if pe- is is the illegal sex trade. It's people who are forced into it because that's it's a separate Absolutely. thing. It's the but at the, the same the, time the they're, they're still have... they're still on the front line. But they're yeah. still that's right. They're still at the front line. Even you know I've had, even with these larger discussions about Black Lives Matter and racial equality and stuff. When we talk about chattel slavery, part of that frustration is people that this insistence that that's happened already. Mm. But sex trafficking continues to happen in earnest. And I remember having previous posts last year where even like the rapper Cardi B was saying girls as young as 14 are being trafficked in the Bronx. They're being trafficked in D.C. And it's been like 60 missing black and Latina young girls and no one seems to care. And then in, the same, uh, same, in that same breath, we're saying bring back our girls because Boko Haram has taken them away mm. in Nigeria. But the girls that are actually here, we're not taking care of them. And it's like you say, like sex work is a massive umbrella term. As far as I'm concerned, if someone comes and you get paid, that's sex work. Yeah. So for you to take, like, for example, a superior position because you're a surrogate mother, um, to me, you're no better than a prostitute. And I don't say that in terms of a prostitute being a, a pejorative term or a negative term. I'm saying someone is utilising your womb mm-hmm. for their needs without any uh, romantic link to you in exchange for capital. Yeah. That's no different to prostitution because no prostitutes have penetrative sex with their clients. Some yeah. people are paid to hug. So essentially, as you said, because we have a framework of sexual repression and we taboo sex... It means that anyone who exhibits any kind of sexual proclivity outside of what we consider to be normal, and we refer to as fetish, then we don't have a framework that can, they can be open about whatever their kink or whatever their yeah, fetish is. 100%. So then they have to, therefore, so then who is able to provide that service? Again, then people will go to sex workers. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's insane that anyone who would have a discussion about equality and protection of women do not consider, like you said, the victims of sex trafficking first mm-hmm. and, and, and prostitutes. Because as I say... Patriarchy, we can't deny how bad it is, but people don't understand. Prostitutes and sex work as an industry is keeping the true evil of patriarchy at bay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is literally the thin red line between complete phallocentric, patriarchal, draconian destruction and domination of women. And these women at least provide the equivalent of, you know, the ibuprofen or the aspirin that basically, or just they tranquilize these men and their lustful urges. Yeah. And also it's like, you know, if you again, if we're looking at like our standards of sexuality and how that kind of intersects with vanity and beauty, if you look a certain way, let's say you're a veteran, you come back from war, you stood on an IED, now you've got no legs. Or not only have you got no legs, now you've got a colostomy bag and due to the, your medication you have to take, you probably can't get an erection anyway. Trying to find a woman that can understand all of those and still work out a way to gratify you without her feeling uncomfortable is going to be difficult for most. Mm-hmm. Once again... It's going to be sex workers that mitigate that plight for somebody. Yeah. And so this is why I, yeah, I, I had to make the post because, um, you know, it's, it, it just shows this paradox whereby it's like, oh, we have a world where women can't earn as much as men. This might be one of the one industries where women can be overrepresented or more proportionally represented than men are and they can realise more money. Mm. And that is not down to any kind of manipulation or any kind of matriarchal manipulation. That is actually a pure function of economics. There's just more of a demand for men wanting to have sex with women than there is for women to have sex with men. Yeah. Therefore, if they can monetize that demand, what is the problem? Like, I even got a joke about it where I'm kind of like, so men earn 20% more than women, so why can't women recover that 20% by being, you know, the leaders of the sex trade industry? Mm. Yeah, completely. And again, it's, it's ridiculous, the, the, the bias that there is in society about it. No one has any issue with the thought that, you know, you take a girl out, you might buy her a meal, treat her well, all these kind of things, and then you hope it goes somewhere. 
It's the same thing. It's ex- it's your Absolutely. it's 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 the comfortable uh, idea of exchanging money for sex when Absolutely. it should just be everyone's choice. There shouldn't be Absolutely. a taboo or negativity over. Absolutely, but it's this is the part of the thing is that. But this is the part of I guess this is the part of the whole spell is that like you know within the capitalist framework we know that sex sells. Yeah. By that token, if it does sell, then the people that lead the industry they want to be able to control the flow of sex in the same way that the money supply is controlled. So the way I put it is like, for example, you always notice that women uh, have their sexuality being realised in ways that you wouldn't see people be sexual. So you watch an advert for like a shampoo and a woman's having an orgasm while she's washing her hair. She's eating a, she's eating a yogurt, she's having an orgasm while she's mixing yeah, the fruit yeah, and the yogurt. Yeah, yeah. Like, she's spreading <laughs> Philadelphia on the toast, foaming at the vagina. Like, that's not the effect yeah. that cream cheese has on you. <laughs> but we always display women. The only time you don't see women having their autonomy of their own sexuality yeah. is involving sex. Because now if a woman says, well, okay, cool, I know men want pussy, so I'm going to charge them for it. Everyone's like, oh, what's happened to yeah. the fabric of society? But the entirety of the promotional matrix towards men is, buy this so women will sleep with you. Buy this so women will sleep with you. Buy this yeah. so women will sleep with you. If there was this idea of the commodification of sex, what would Lynx's uh, promotional yeah. model be? Yeah, 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 yeah. It wouldn't, yeah. It wouldn't even gone. exist. It'd be gone. Even with milk trays, like buy chocolates because the bird yeah. will love it, and yeah. she'll have sex here because it's your anniversary. But so, he's put a suit on, so it's it's romantic. It's romanticised because he's wearing a suit, and it's all this nice thing. There you go. And, but, but I think there's a real capitalist sentiment to it, whereby obviously women are the majority on this planet, and if we had a state whereby these women could control and have autonomy over their own sex and commodify it at their choosing, it means that you're going to have a new class of women who are very wealthy because they're selling... It's the one profession in the world, so really the only... The, and arguably the only one, where they're, they're the only ones that are supplying a demand because most of our... All of our other commerce is built on subsistence living. Like, before we had all these systems, I grow crops, you trade in livestock, we exchange those yeah. because they have a mutual benefit. Where sex is distinct because sex is a want that is yeah. disguised as a need. So that's the only real true economic model that actually works and there's price inelastic because whatever economic times we're living in, people still want sex. They still need sex. They'll still go and get it. Times of peace, people enjoy sex. Times of war, all of the brothels are around the barracks. So it's an inelastic product that we have in our society. And I think there are just people that have an industrialist interest in not allowing women to have that power to control that themselves. Because the porn trade is more lucrative than music and film combined. And yet women probably have very are massively represented in terms of the talent, but probably not so much in controlling the narrative and controlling the industry itself. But that's where I think the looking down on things like OnlyFans and all that comes from because it is where it's being rebalanced. It's so much of that kind of thing is mm-hmm. women taking their own Absolutely. ownership and being their own production yep. companies as such. And it cuts the men out. So it, 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 it becomes a snarky yeah. joke and a look down out. upon. Absolutely. And, they, yeah, and, and encourage it and ridicule it enough that there's yeah. this shame associated with it. But then if you're online selling fake uh, yeah. trading solutions that don't freaking work. If you're online selling penis enlargement pills, which again is only providing a more of a toxic masculine testament, um, sentiment where it's like, have a bigger dick, women will like you. Well, I can't pull my dick out yeah. as I get into the pub, can I? Yeah, so yeah, how yeah, useful yeah, is yeah. this? But yeah, it's, 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 it's really, it's really, yeah, it's really the stigma that is attached to it to try and, yeah, ridicule that kind of thing. Because again, I've always had this thing where I'll say, people are like, yeah, but if your daughter was a stripper, then what would you what would you feel like? It's like, you think, you know, I, I don't mind if my daughter's happy and fulfilled in her line of work because she could be wearing no clothes, bra, panty. Like most women, statistically, she's going to be dealing with the same yeah. amount of sexual harassment and trauma. So I look at it this way. 
I would rather my daughter be paid to take off her pants than my son be the kind of guy who pays yeah. women to sniff their pants. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah, somebody's yeah. son too. Yeah, that's perfect. That. Again, it's all... The whole OnlyFans thing is just the same as, like, the drug trade and the war on drugs. You can have all this legislation and funding for the war against drugs, but it's yeah. the demand for cocaine. That If that doesn't change, it doesn't matter what you do to Mexican drug cartels, because all they've done is replace Colombian yeah. drug cartels. And all they've replaced are Nicaraguan yeah. Sandinistas. So it's the same thing. OnlyFans can only be viable as a business model yeah. if people pay to see these naked women. So who is really at fault here? The people who have the demand or those business yeah, people supplying? There's, there's two things that come to mind there. Number one, you're completely right. It's always the framing of, would you like your daughter to grow up to be a stripper or whatever where they're at more risk of rape and attack? It's like, why aren't we talking about, would you like your son to grow up to be a rapist? No, that's, that's the issue, not the other Absolutely. side of it. And number two, the comparison exactly. to drugs is perfect. I do, I, I'm often on a podcast called Say Why to Drugs and we talk about the... The chemicals in the drugs, the the pros and cons. It's not pro-drugs, it's not anti-drugs, it's just the facts. But the thing that we have to say on that all the time is, obviously, all this goes out the window when you're buying off a street dealer because there could be anything in it. There could be anything mixed into it. So the yeah. the ridiculous idea that to save people from drugs, we make them illegal, is as stupid as to save people from the sex trade or whatever, we make it illegal. They're two Absolutely. trades that have always gone on and aren't going away. So the way we make them safe is by legalising and moderating and, 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 and protecting the people within those industries rather than saying further demonising, further criminalisation. And as I said, the easy example I always... I got off of uh, an ex-undercover a police officer I had on the podcast is the fact that I've been ID'd more times than I can remember in, in, in bars, particularly in Essex. You're trying to get in a bit younger. I've never been ID'd <laughs> buying drugs, yeah. not once. You know what I mean? Mm. So, again, because cause, cause alcohol go. is yeah, legal, yeah. there's like, there I can't go. get it, I have to leave. My local drug dealer was there never go. going, how old are you? Are you old enough to be doing this? He's going, how much money have you got? There you go. Exactly. And what's funny is, is that the same people who would be so outspoken about these forms of vice are the same ones who are so opposed to socialism and encourage deregulation and encourage yeah. free market economics. And yet, where you have these self-starters and technically small to medium enterprises of people being able to monetize these things, then they don't want any parts of it. And, you know, I, I mean, the drug thing for me is a very simple thing. Again, it's back to a system of economics whereby cocaine, marijuana, uh, even aspirin and paracetamol, they all have uh, mm-hmm. plant origins. Because they originate, have a natural origin, it means that you can't legally right. patent them. Yeah, 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 yeah. So because you can't patent them, you can't earn the money from them, which is why Nurofen and other companies, or Advil, they add an additional maybe carbon or sugar chain to this uh, drug, and they give it their sugar coating, and then you get a 3,000% yeah. markup. And that's the reason why you get, like, Nurofen is £5 for extra strength, but it's 16 pence in Tesco. And yet, because of the milligrams, yeah. the dosage is exactly the same. So this one is no more powerful. But again, it's a suggestion that, that because it comes from big pharma, it's better. And I think that's all it's down to. And it, like, you know, you notice now that medical marijuana yeah. can be synthesized, now there's no problem with marijuana. Yeah. You get dispensaries everywhere. But when something can be grown in climates that don't benefit, like, you know, Western interests, even if, even if you look at the distribution chain of drugs, it's very different to fair trade drugs because for, you look at, like, the Ivory Coast, one of the world's yeah. largest exporters of coffee. You ever seen a Ghanaian person on the board of directors or in an advert yeah, for Starbucks? Exactly. Never. But you watch Scarface and you know Scarface is making a shitload, but Sosa, who is above yeah. him in the distribution chain, yeah. makes the most money. 
So normally with most distribution chains, the wholesaler has more wealth than the street, the street dealer or, you know, this person-to-person um, dealer or distributor. But with fair trade products, people are, they get poorer as it goes further yeah. towards the country of origin, mm. which yeah. doesn't really make any sense. Whereas with cocaine, if you're from there, you're going to sell it. And then if you look at these two products whereby things like bananas and legal produce are subject to like excise tariffs and import, ta- import tax and duty tax. So they make money from that. So if you're a farmer and you live in Peru and you know if I grow quinoa or I grow bananas, I might make a little margin that's enough to feed my family. If someone comes along in this developing country and says, if you grow these cocoa plants, mm. I can pay you 10 times that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? You don't see at the end where how it affects people and the garden stuff are gone. I'm, just, I'm, at this, I'm at this base where I have to grow my own food. My survival depends on that. So we don't, they don't see the end of the distribution chain. So they can't be at fault. But how are you going to create this state and get rid of this criminality and desperation if with your own legal produce, you're screwing people over under this guise of fair trade? But the drug dealer is providing them with a, a revenue stream. Completely, that can and with all the legal farmers. produce as well, you're not only screwing them over, you're erasing them from history um, with, with you know, chocolate. You think of Belgium, great Belgian chocolate coffee. You think of Italy, yeah. real Italian coffee. You can't yeah, yeah. grow coffee in Italy. You yeah. can't grow cocoa in Belgium. Or, or so it's cocoa like, in it, Belgium. It, it, we yeah. were raised... It was only... I, yeah, it's, it was only recently kind of realising that. It's like... They're the places I think of associated to these. You can't grow it there. The origins have been erased from that story. That's the... the Exactly. And and, and again, and, and, you know, if you think about, like, the knock-on effects of that, like, people go to Italy because they want to have good espressos and they want to have good cappuccinos, you know? People people would even go, like, to Colombia because they'll get get the good Coke. But, like you said, because the people that create this stuff and curate this stuff are not... It's not acknowledged what they do then they're probably losing out for ecotourism as well because you notice people go to Napa Valley yeah. just to see where wine is made. But they're, gonna, they're not going to go to Ghana to see the conditions under which people yeah, are yeah. able to grow coffee Completely. beans. I love it. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad this has started how it has because, as I mentioned earlier, I've, I've been saying that, that we're going to have you on at some point for ages. When lockdown started, I tried to resist doing anything over Zoom and then... Just as I was thinking, right, I'll hit Dane up now. I've got this I've, on my phone. I've got this long list of people on it, and you've been on there, on there for, for a minute. And then I had this moment where I felt, at this stage, it's more racist to have Dane on than to not have Dane on because it felt <laughs> yeah. like because it felt like all of a sudden every yeah. podcast was having Dane on to to, to, to explain yeah. to white people yeah, about b- b- Black Lives Matter person. now. The reason I'm glad we started like this is because it showed that you weren't on those podcasts just because you're a black person. It's because you're you've educated yourself on these subjects. You're a great talker and explainer. But I wanted to just ask how you are in all of that because that's a lot of extra pressure to be added on. Yeah, yeah. I'm, and I'm not having to go any any podcast. Obviously, are you on on Brett's? And it was amazing because the reason he re-released yeah, yeah, that, was that episode was when it came out. You gave great knowledge on the racism behind the scenes of these stories and these parts of cinema. So it was it was perfect. And Rich Wilson as well, just loads of really good stuff. But also on the news, it felt like you were having to go everywhere to explain things yeah, for white circuit. people. So it just happened that everywhere yeah. I saw you, it was talking to I another... Was it was talking to a white person. Absolutely. Another, another white person. So here we but are. You know, but you know what? It's, it's a strange <laughs> thing, bro. Yeah, but it's... You know, but you know what? It's, it's absolutely fine because, you know, 
I, I, if I'm honest, I kind of uh, anticipated this state in the first place because when I first started doing comedy, like even some of my friends and stuff would be like, you do talk about race stuff a lot. And I was like, this is not because uh, I, my tone is not to come on stage and be kind of accusatory. It's because I'm aware that, you know, I live in a predominantly white country. Now, this doesn't mean that people are necessarily predisposed to be racist, but it means that their experience and their direct experience with people of other races is going to be very limited, yeah. if not non-existent. Now, when I did, I did my sitcom with Sunny yeah. D on BBC Three, like in 2016, and I say that because that was the first black British sitcom on BBC and it's on TV madness, for 20 years. Isn't it? Madness. Well, what that means by that token is that you have an entire generation with 20 years is just a side of a generation of people who have had no reference point yeah. for black British life yeah. in their faces. So they've not been able to draw their conclusions in the same way that, like, if you are an elder millennial or, like, you know, you were born in the 70s, 80s, yeah, you grew up yeah, on Desmond's, you may have seen, you know, you'd, you'd have seen that. You've seen your Trevor McDonald's, your Rusty Lee's, and you've seen enough black icons for you to get some semblance, just be aware of the aesthetic of black people, but much less you get a kind of an insight into black life, even if it is embellished for comedic effect. By not having that, you have no idea what black people can like and how you can relate to them, because no one can relate to people they've never met. Now, if they only see a very uh, homogenous state of black people, we're on TV only discussing sports, racism, racism in sports, then if you are a white person living in a white, uh, all-white village or a hamlet, you're in a satellite town, if every time you see a black person on TV, their face is, their, their frow is furrowed. Their brow is furrowed. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brow is furrowed, and they're, like, furrowed and they're just like, oh, I'm angry at the world because everyone hates me. You're already going to start developing an air of hostility towards them because yeah. as human beings, we're a social species. Of course you are, because if every time you see someone, they're pissed off. It's like if you're at school, if there's that one teacher that always looks pissed off and strict, that's the person you're going to be more adverse to even interacting with. And that's the same thing for the large white population. And that the media and in my particular industry, comedy will take has to take massive, massive mm. all the responsibility for that. I say that because even though we are aware of how racist America is, for people that want to be open to learning about, you know, race relations in America, they have been spoiled with a wealth of mouthpieces that can give that to them. So, you know, America's legacy, even with comedy, goes like Dick Gregory, who was like the first African-American on TV. You've had Red Fox, you've had Flip Wilson, and, you know, and then you've had, uh, Mm -hmm. obviously, Richard Pryor, and Richard Pryor begat Eddie Murphy, who begat Chris Rock, then you've got Dave Chappelle, now you've got this new generation of, like, Jared Carmichael and Hannibal Buress. So you've had about four or five generations of people that have been able to give white Americans an insight into the black journey. In this country, yeah. there we have no equivalent. The closest you have is that Ramesh Ranganathan has a Richard yeah. Pryor tattoo on his arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the closest we are in this country. You know, if you look at Lady Henry and the origins of his career and the wave of alternate comics he came out with, you know, your Joe, Brand, your Joe Brands, your French and Saunders and the like, those guys are now established as icons of British comedy. Lenny Henry is still complaining yeah. about representation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm yeah. here now. And I was, he was doing comedy yeah. since before I was born. Now I've got people coming under me and he's still saying that he's not recognised yeah. for what he's done. So that's, so if you look at British society, they still only have Lenny Henry as their most recent reference point for a mouthpiece for uh, the black British diaspora. And that's crazy because... They, how else are they going to know? How else would they even be able to form? Because if you don't see something that can show you a parallel with your own life or any kind of mutuality, you're not going to be able to relate. And I see that manifest as when I'm doing a gig or I'm outside or if I'm in a cigarette, there'll be a white person that, like anybody else, will want to have a conversation with me. But because he has been told that I can't broach any topic with a black person unless it's preceded by black first, this poor guy is like, uh, you know, he wants to stop... 
he might want to talk about the weather or the football, but he'll be like, oh, oh yeah, my, my friend Trevor, he's Jamaican from work. Because he has no other idea of how to practice rapport building with a black person because yeah. the media has deprived him of that. And that is that. And so they, so they form a large part of the problem in this country where it's almost like we refuse to acknowledge like a black narrative, especially one from someone like I'm in my mid 30s. Yeah. So you're not really going to see that. And all you've seen in this country at best, at this country at best, has been this reducing and conflating of black culture with youth culture. So to see it on TV, when you see black people nowadays, the preoccupations are all very adolescent. It's what cars, the chains, the music, girls. But most of my friends are in age now where they're looking for good universities to send their kids to. And so these things are part of their lives. They're normal. They're like any other white person of a certain age. Their preoccupations now are with finding somewhere good to live, somewhere of high economic prosperity, where the best school to send my children to. You know, my day to day is involves me trying to manage and, you know, enhance my career as well as do my normal commute home. But white people on a large scale in this country, as well as black people, do not see people that represent yeah. that ideal on TV. So how, 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 would an, how would a white person living in north of Scunthorpe ever know anything about a black house? Because the TV has told them that that doesn't exist. And so yeah, they only see black people opining on things like football, which, again, has no real relevance to real life. So how are they going to observe any kind of... I love of that, and, and it's the highlighting that the representation in, in, in some part is to give black families someone to see that they, they recognise, but it's equally to give white people Absolutely. that insight. I remember when I went to see a, a, a Black Panther. I love all the Marvel films, but I mm-hmm. went in thinking, I'm yeah. excited about this film, but I don't think it's anything to do with actual empowerment because... All the black families I've ever known yeah, yeah. know about Malcolm X and know about Martin Luther King and have their heroes. That's, you yeah. know, real heroes. Yeah. But what I saw as the cro- a credits run, growing up in a part of Essex that's had BMP, EDL, all these kind of things, mm-hmm. seeing these young w- white kids d- dancing and cheering and realising that they're not going to know about Martin Luther King and they're not going to know about Malcolm X. So exactly. to give the white people... They won't. ..or the white children a black hero is a new thing. Again, it was the same with... I felt the same with... Absolutely. ..Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman and all these. It felt like a, a, a positive intention, it but does, a potential it, it does so much more. of big, it does so, big business. It does so much. It's so much. And I feel like we really underestimate that value of just, as I said, as a social species it is very hard for you to conceptualise another state of being yeah. if you don't see it somewhere else. And, and, and again, it's like, because as I said, we're all born pure and we are all yeah. very much subject to suggestion. So even if you are a black person and you come from a certain socioeconomic background, it's been suggested to you that education is not yeah. for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've, you did, you've dealt with the institutional uh, racism in academia, so you're already adverse to it. Not only that, all of the archetypes you see of people that look like you never represent that kind of, you know, academic scholar. So even if you meet a black scholar, you're like, well, black people ain't supposed to do that because you've <laughs> yeah, been subject yeah, to yeah. the suggestion for so long. So you already, so so you already, so in your head, you're like, this is not what we're, we're not supposed to be like this, you know. So in the same way, if you get a suggestion that you're supposed to act a certain way because all the representation you see, yeah, you're just going to yeah. mimic that because if you like any white person, if you exist outside of that conformity, you know you're going to be subject to being a pariah or being an outcast. So you're a young black man, and it's like, okay, seeing that we are, we normalise the idea of misogyny, we normalise the idea of no paternal influence in the home, you know, and this is all happening with the institutional mm-hmm. racism that accompanies it as well. So it's normalised that a propensity to violence is acceptable. This is how I realise my masculinity. Oh, being able to be incarcerated is a rite of passage. 
Well then, how can you be surprised if you turn out that way? Because it's like, if like you'll hear like right wing pundits and uh, news and presenters and stuff and be like, well, but there needs to be more role models in the black community. Well, let's remember historically. First of all, there were, mm-hmm. and you killed them all. Second of all, if that's how you feel, there are plenty of black scholars and accomplished academics who you could be promoting. What you do instead is that you promote black and brown people under the premise that essentially they exist only aesthetically and they still represent your values. Because whenever I'm talking about race, what I want people to understand is that race itself is a construct. And I say that especially in the UK, whereby we almost pride ourselves on having a much more enlightened idea when it comes to like religion and government secular. And you'll hear people boast proud mostly about being atheists mm-hmm. like you look at someone like Ricky Gervais and he will speak very openly about his atheism to cheers of equally enlightened white people but then if it's by the same token that you believe that there's no such thing there's no such thing as a god and no divine power then the entire basis for you know the annexation and colonizing of South Africa was done under called the hermetic principle that's biblical yeah. so then that doesn't exist in the same way that you know African conquest and even chattel slavery were both done under the pretense mm-hmm. of Christian doctrine so if you are not accepting that this is all bullshit why have you not remunerated the people under which you were yeah, pressed under yeah. that ideal? You know, that even, even if it's not reparational economic, it's like, well, the church is lying. You've stolen stuff from people under this guy, under this pretense. So why are you not yeah. returning the money to them then? So, you know, I just, I just, it's like, even by the definition of species, there are no yeah. separate races. But how, well, how come that is not brought out? Every newspaper, every tablet could be like, race doesn't exist. Here is a double page spread, which proves it conclusively. So the race division problem could be solved because you would just say that there is no difference between races. By the definition, by the Darwinian definition of species, two organisms will mate and produce viable offspring, which black, white people can do, Asian people can do. We can all reproduce in that fashion. In fact, by us mixing, we increase our biodiversity and reduce the repeated, repeated incidences of uh, genetic, uh, genetic um, I suppose, genetic traits that will lead yeah. to like, um, chronic disease and stuff. Yeah. So you're less likely to have them. So we all know this, but what you but this is not this is not we don't speak about this in our society. And the reason why is because even though we might say that, really we don't really uphold it in real life. Example being the domestication of canines, because every the British bulldog, for example, yeah. is so inbred that it can it can't conceive on its own without yeah. the help of a veterinarian, and spends most of its life plagued with respiratory problems yeah. and birth yeah, defects, yeah, yeah, just yeah. like pugs. But we continue to breed them for their aesthetic. Yeah. Purposes, yeah, yeah, yeah. not because it helps the dogs, but it's because what we it like helps to look us. at. What we like to look at, we find it cute, and then we go further by the fact that dogs are mammals like us, which means at one point in their life they have secondary sexual development. That means they want to have sex, they want to procreate, because that's part of their how they're wired biologically. But despite that fact, a dog's a fully grown dog with a big, fully grown dog dick, and I'm saying this because we'll still cuddle a dog yeah. like it's a baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And still infantilize it and, and 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 make it feel like it's adolescent. Oh, that's a little boy. Your little boy is a grown great dane that wants to fuck something. <laughs> yeah. It's not a boy. Where that dog is concerned biologically, it's a man now. And if you're not going to get something yeah, to fuck yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah, gonna yeah, hump yeah. your leg. And we and we say we say it's cute when we're just dealing with a, an organism that is sexually frustrated and we've created a way where it's not able to realize its instinctive need to procreate. And a large part of our treatment in racism right. is very similar. Is the fact that we took people from Africa and they were bred for, you know, their fairly typical attributes, which is why young black men in America naturally now grow, involve broad shoulders, because they realise that the NFL has replaced slavery, so if you have broad shoulders, you can fit the kit on, and you're more likely to become a footballer. Black men grow tall as hell because they would buy basketball and be sports, 
before sla- after slavery is one of the only ways they're going to realise social mobility by being able to make earning money as a professional sports player. But essentially, they're bred for this purpose. Even as I said to you before, because we've conflated black culture with youth culture, you're still a perpetual adolescent. Where even though I'm a man now, mm. but I'm still acting like a child. Because, because essentially, as people, we've only had our culture for... We're teenagers, so far as global culture. Because prior to civil rights, black people were allowed to have their own language or their own religion or to marry freely or into even reproduce freely. You were, resistance, you were reduced to the state of a dog because you can have your children as a woman, as an African woman, but they can take your kids away. In the same way that if you have puppies, the little yeah. puppies, yeah. people just sell them. But if you can imagine, if we can understand how dogs talk, <laughs> what would your Labrador say when she finds out that yeah. she's, you yeah. sold her children? But she has to. But that dog you see in dogs' eyes, you're taking, you've taken their children away, and somehow they still have to rationalise that fact and still walk beside yeah. you with a leash around their fucking neck. So every now and again, a dog goes crazy and attacks another child, yeah. and we wonder why. It's a, and it's the same thing, you know, with the diaspora, where it's like you've robbed people of their, you've robbed people of their, you've black men have not even had a concept of patriot of mm. being a patriarch for so long because even if you were the father in the house during slavery, your master's the father, so he can beat and rape your wife at his choice. So even a practice of paternalism. It's something we're getting used to now. Even when we talk about a lack of financial literacy, 70% of all business, black business loans yeah. are, are, are rejected. Even though we know that yeah. hip-hop is a billion-dollar industry. JD Sports does yeah. not sell sports equipment. Yeah. It sells hip-hop yeah. apparel yeah. because of the yeah. influence of that culture. But it's called a sports shop. But, again, you see black people massively underrepresented in this, despite the fact that they are responsible for these booming industries. And that is because, you know, we've been robbed of any kind of financial literacy because, again, we were not allowed to have equity. In the 60s, I couldn't walk into a bank and ask yeah. for a loan. I'd be told to fuck off. In the 60s, if I, came, if, if I wanted to rent somewhere, I'm, I can't rent because no mm. blacks, no dogs, no Irish. So if you've been having to try and thrive throughout all of these things, you probably are going to be angry and you're probably not going to perform yeah. as well as everybody else. But I, and I say what I say this because this is also experienced, but has been experienced by the Irish and other people. But this idea of black or white, these are more concepts that are created. And, it, and, and these concepts allow for division and identity politics of people that want to identify as white. But then if you think about it, by the definition of white, Ashkenazi Jews are white. But they didn't seem too white back yeah. in 1944, yeah. you know. Or albinism also invalidates yeah. the whole idea of race. Because someone can be from Sudan, the darkest part of the world, but people are, you know, the darkest... But if someone has albinism, they'll be whiter than any white man. But we all know not to consider that person yeah. a white person. Yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating as well. I was talking a few episodes back to, to Dr Adam Elliott Cooper about the fact that these racial stereotypes also become self-fulfilling prophecies. Like, the idea that Absolutely. a black-on-black crime is a myth because it's class-based rather than, than race-based. If you go to Glasgow, there's just as much um, working-class crime. They just happen to be white. You go to Liverpool, Manchester, a lot of these places. But in London, the, the a lot of the working class and some parts of Essex are black. Therefore, all we focus on is this black-on-black crime. Yeah. Now, that will influence white people potentially to be racist to think oh this is dangerous this is scary but what we but what we then all it's often the often it's the best way to ignore and forget is that it's going to influence young b- b- black boys as well to think that this is my only option i have it's to be mean, on the road i don't have absolutely. any other options and that's Ab- what gets overlooked absolutely. it's easy to say it's, oh look it's, here's it's making us racist but it's, it's also making it true do you know what i mean is that that's what's happening yeah well because yeah that, and that, that's that's a part of the plan if you want to see the uh, white parallel to that, you look at body dysmorphia and eating disorders. If you are a white woman and there is a suggestion of the archetype that you have to satisfy f- 
physically in order for you to realise a certain level of happiness, then if I don't look like that because I've got big hips, I'm fucked. So what do I do? Now I start starving myself yeah. because I'm trying to represent this ideal. And again, it's kind of like, well, but, and no one can understand that because it's like, oh, but you, there's food everywhere. Why would you starve yourself? Because yeah. that's yeah, also yeah, class-based yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like things like eating disorders. There's, there's, a, there's a class base of that as well because poor people are like, but there's food is abundant and everywhere. Why would you starve yourself? But there's more of a psychological issue that's being dealt with here. And in a way, you know, and I say that because what you're dealing with in both those instances is yeah. self-harm and self-medication for people that feel marginalised by society suggestion. And so that, that's what it's, it's just a pathology of human beings is that if we are from the uh, underclass or we feel we're the underdog or we don't have power, then what normally happens is that that hatred and that frustration yeah. will turn inward. So if you don't have the strength and power to overthrow your oppressors, normally you fight amongst yourselves in, um, yeah. in your yeah, own neighbourhoods. It's like when you go, when you watch, when you watch Pirates of the Caribbean, they're all pirates. But when you get to the, the tavern, yeah, everyone's, yeah, yeah, everyone's yeah, fighting. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> everyone's fighting. So it's it's the same principle, and, and it's like you said. I mean, we literally also, saw it like, recently like, with the football lads yeah. who 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 came to London to protect <laughs> the, essentially to fight the Black Lives Matters protest. The Black Lives Matter protest got stopped, so they yeah, fought basically. amongst themselves and they fought the police. Because, yeah, yeah, they're, they're, there to, and, and they're you know, there to have a scrap. Who, who are they going to have a scrap with? Absolutely. A big part as well in terms of stereotypes, and again, this is something I've identified in the UK, is the fact it's, a, it's a, an engineered ignorance. Because it must be, it's a real paradox for me that a part of the narrative that you get from the right wings are if they're going to come in this country, they have to follow our culture and our customs and speak the language. But white working class men form the highest demographic of the illiterate in this country. Now, this is not me making fun of that fact. It's just a peculiar fact because I imagine the powers that be are aware that white working class men, if mobilised and galvanised, probably pose one of their biggest threats within a patriarchy. Therefore, they have to keep these men ignorant. Now, if you can't read things, everything you hear and understand cognitively is going to come from suggestion or word of mouth. So if your granddad and his dad are like, we don't like these darkies, you're already getting this narrative from when you were a child. Then... You can't read any alternate facts to what you're being told. That's the difference between me is that I've had the privilege of a, you know, a grammar school education. So it means because of that, the, lo- the allure of being on road or being a member of a gang, never going to happen yeah. because I'm aware of an alternative. Yeah. But if you've not had access to that, then what people understand about like gangs and stuff like that is that this is not a thing where people are like, oh, my days, I'm going to join a gang. I can't wait. If you live in an area of low economic prosperity and like any other human being, your first instinct is survival. If you see your uncle selling drugs and having to do what they need to do and your brothers, your dads, in order to them, for them to survive, that doesn't look like criminality to you. That just looks like yeah, the way you yeah. survive where yeah. you live. You know, my dad was, dad was a gangster. His dad was a gangster. You're going to be a gangster. You see that play out nepotistically in every other arena. My dad was involved in um, the finance sector. That's how I got my job in the sector. Like, you look at America, the last... 20 years of presidency have been within only four bloodlines. So, in the same way, if you see that being done, then it just looks normal to you. It doesn't look crazy to you. It's not... I'm aware of the risks that are involved in this lifestyle, but this is the lifestyle culturally I'm taught provides me... I love that. And it's interesting you, 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 you highlight in there that, again... That spans the races. Like there was a big, a big article recently about yeah. um, the government n- need to inject billions into education or a certain amount of universities and things like that are going to have to close down. And the comment section was full of angry working class white people saying, 
close them down because yeah. all these kids are going to university and, and coming out brainwashed. The reality is they're going to university and coming out educated. We should, if, if, if your fear yeah. is people learning factual and historical information and therefore having a different v- view to you, then you should be able to, or you, mm. again, you should question that. You should question your own view. Absolutely. But again, there's the complex of that that I understand as well, because this is what I guess a lot of people, I mean, and empathy is very difficult when you're dealing with supremacists, but you've you got to look at it from a perspective whereby even how we, uh, the way to parallel is that the way we live now, where I can go on to ASOS and I can click on a T-shirt and that could get sent to my house. While I enjoy this convenience, I am aware that there are sweatshops in the Far East where people are exploited for their labour for me to realise this privilege. I am not that I'm not that happy about it, but as you can see, I don't do much in order to stop that, if I'm honest with myself. There's a certain amount of emotional currency I have and a certain amount of power I have to change that. That is almost a complex you're dealing with with your average white person. They may not be hold very racist or bigoted views, but they live in a world whereby dominant culture suggests how they live and who they are is the conformist yeah. and the control level. Like, I'm a normal white dude. I live in the suburbs with my 2.4 kids. I go to work. I earn a crust. Maybe go for a drink. I come home. I watch my TV. Hang on my family. Lather, rinse, repeat. Now, that means, within a, again, within a capitalist society, your life isn't going to be that remarkable. Like most people's aren't. Most of us aren't going to have our dream jobs. Now, the only way you can rationalise that without feeling some kind of existential angst or anger or resentment is that you are also told, doesn't matter if you live in a trailer park, buddy, you're still better than 0.8 billion people in the world. Now, if something begins to happen, whereby, like you said, through the merit of education, social and economic mobility, this underclass, which allows you to have some self-esteem, begins to rise, you're the the only one that's left on the bottom rung of the ladder. So that means it was all a lie. I'm not better than anybody. I'm not shit like anyone else isn't shit. For, for someone to come to that point, it's like the emperor's new clothes. Like, when everyone's like, you're not yeah. actually wearing any clothes, you're absolutely fucked. Because that is a system of control for white people as well, is that you don't need to read. You have your, your, your pubs are open, you've got your football. You know, as long as these, long as these immigrants don't take yeah. your jobs, everything's going to be okay. And so these people have to hold on to this ideal because they've been taught so much that their culture and their way of living should be cherished, that anything that threatens that, they have to be opposed to it. Even though... It's been built on the premise that you're a minority, but like I said, by the natural laws of nature and even by Darwinist theory itself, if your genes come into contact with more dominant ones, they're the ones that are going to be expressed yeah. phenotypically. And things like blonde hair and blue eyes yeah, yeah, are genetically yeah. recessive. Or you've created a narrative when they are superior, which is why to this day, when white women have auburn or curly hair, they mm-hmm. straighten it and they dye it blonde because they've been taught their whole lives yeah, that blondes yeah, yeah, have yeah, yeah. more fun. If they begin to start seeing that people who don't look blonde are having more fun... Well, now it's all a lie. In the same way that, like, the argument for racial harmony is, like, the argument for veganism on steroids. Because if you look, again, at your average working-class white person and they picture their ideal roast, to be vegan, remove the cauliflower cheese, remove the meat and the gravy from that plate, and it's just a plate of boiled potatoes. No one wants to eat that shit. A plate of boiled potatoes means you are in the Dickensian dystopian (laughs) nightmare. You're broke. You've been taught culturally, meat is an indicator of wealth. Whenever you see like the Kenjian depictions of wealth and good things, it's like a big ham on the table with pineapples on it. There's a pig with an apple in its mouth. There's a big fucking bone. Like even when you play computer games, the apple gives you a little bit of health. But if you (laughs) eat the turkey, it's full energy. 
So you've already been taught that you associate this meat with nutrition, with wealth, with even with the Christmas turkey is the yeah. biggest part of the Christmas meal. If people come along and start saying, well, actually, it's quite bad for you and we need to start avoiding any kind of animal fats, you're going to be like, what the fuck yeah. are you talking about? I, what? This is good for us. This is the indicator of wealth. So do you imagine how much that's ingrained in our society culturally that, you know, especially especially when now people who maybe lived in the north know that you get like chips yeah. and scraps yeah, yeah, or chips yeah. and bits? That originates from the fact that like fish is expensive because it was caught fresh. But now there's a bit of demand filled. So now you have farmed, you have fish farms that can now supplement this need for meat. So now, again, it's a standard of living that people that were previously treading water yeah. are now enjoying a new standard of living. You know, people like nice things. To go back on that on a moral basis that you need to be helping other people in the world is a lot for people to take, especially when they're literally hanging on by a thread. Because when we strip it all away, even a white person who I might think is enjoying the most privileged living in London and having their job in the creative industry, even if they're earning 50 grand a year, even though that puts them in the 90th percentile of earners in this country, still yeah. probably just treading water, yeah. paying their rent. And so for some people, that's, to sit down and ponder the fact that essentially you are a debt slave is very tough. The only thing you can do is tell people, but you're white, so you're better than everybody else. Because then they won't try to usurp their, control, yeah. their, uh, their uh, oppressors. If you've got comparative privilege, you won't upset that balance by, uh, over, yeah. by yeah. overthrowing the ruling class. Because you can still rationalise your position in this hierarchy that I'm not the best, but I'm better than them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so s- simple that they can have superiority. Yeah. By doing nothing. So so why would you shake that up? Exactly, yeah. And would you would you give that away? Why would you shake that up? Why would you? Why would you? Why would you shake that up? In general, you have to do something to feel superior, whether that be physically superior, mentally superior, all these things take work and time. Whereas if you can sit there and go, at the moment, I don't have to do a thing other than... And I'm still superior. ...stick with how things are, and I get to still be superior... In some way, absolutely. I can't, I couldn't pass the English GCSE, yeah. but white men invented yeah, the space yeah, shuttle, yeah, yeah, so yeah, we're yeah. better than you. You, if that's the, if that's all you have, you're gonna, of course, you're gonna hold on to this idea with uh, this yeah. idea with everything you have, because you get to identify with this idea of superiority. Yeah, you would never. Why would you let it go? With the kind of fear that most human beings have. Yeah, and we don't need much to back it up either. A World Cup every few years, a World War, even less years. That's enough. We can trade off that. There you go. There you go. Or, 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 yeah. or, or perpetual war. Because remember, yeah. no one's come yeah, home from yeah, Afghanistan yeah, yeah. yet, nor Iraq. So, it's, it's so you know, it's very easy to kind of keep that thing up. And like I said, it, it's, it, and it's also, then when you look at the other part of the complex that white supremacy deals with, especially someone like America, is that in spite of the actions committed in chattel slavery, the existence and the continued prosperity of black people and their consciousness means that all of the theories that justify this treatment were false too. Because they were human beings, regardless mm-hmm. of three fifths of a human being. But again, like I said, just through Darwin's scientific theory and the existence of mixed race people, yeah. obviously they are human beings. And so it means that you will have to concede that your treatment of human beings has yeah. been yeah. downright evil. Again, that is too much for people to take on board. So this narrative that they're subhuman, that they have a propensity to crime, has to happen. Because if I don't acknowledge this, yeah. then I've got to acknowledge what we did. And then it's like, if this is what we did, well, of course, like us, yeah. they'd want revenge. Because we know that we're predisposed to violence. If what happened to us, if what happened to them mm-hmm. happened to us, we want revenge. Because when they hit those towers, yeah. Yeah. we started a 10-year war. So we've been hitting the black equivalent of the, their, their two towers for 400 years. As soon as they're free, they're going to want to kill us and rape us. Because that's what we did. Well, then they're going to come at some point. We're going to die. How, how can we save ourselves? Well, we make guns legal, number one. And we all have all of our um, 
proliferation of guns. Because these guns are the only thing stopping these black people from getting their revenge in the places previously where we had such a large black war- workforce because of slavery. Now there's this entire contingent of black people in places yeah, where yeah, yeah, we're yeah, kind yeah. of outnumbered. So then it's like, well, we c- And also, because quite a lot of white people, like I said, have enjoyed a certain level of privilege, you can be a white guy that's never had to throw his fist in his entire life, live in the suburbs, and your life will be completely devoid of conflict. Now, people who are poor and people who are of a different race who have to nurture their survival instinct because of institutional and structural racism, physically they'll yep. be a threat to you as far as you see it. If a black guy walks up the street wanting his revenge and wants to take my house, he can knock me the fuck out and take it. That's how you think. Because all the, the black men I see on the news are these men with these prison-sculpted bodies who have had all these rigors of slavery, so they're naturally predisposed to be more masculine and more alpha than me. Also, we live in a patriarchy whereby the biggest dick makes the rules, but we all know what we think about black men. So this scares the fucking shit out of me. Who will save us? Well, then you create this institution of law enforcement that continues to serve your white supremacist needs. And even if they are completely corrupt, it's like, well, we can't get rid of them. Because if we do, then yeah. there's nothing between us yeah. and black revenge. It's madness. Speaking of, of, of America and, and, and the comparison there, you mentioned earlier people, the, the, the lineage of, of black comedians. Um, I've heard Chappelle yeah. and I've heard Kevin Hart and numerous others speak of the the difference in America between playing to black audiences and playing to white audiences. I've heard white comedians speak of it as well, that there's a different thing. There's not so much of that, or it's not been so prevalent in the UK. Now, you've spoken recently of, of racism or, at the very least, inappropriate conversations you've had within the comedy industry. Now, I'm not going to ask you to name names because I know you you were about to name names on Twitter, yeah. but but you were advised otherwise, <laughs> rightfully <laughs> so, I'm sure. So I'm not. Yeah. I ain't looking to get any scoops yeah, there, saying that kind of okay. podcast. But <laughs> how's that been? And do you think there's? Yeah, do you feel it's influenced by the potential lack of a history of these separate scenes? Massively, yeah, yeah, massively, yeah. I think that's probably one of the biggest part. I mean. Comedy, uh, very accurately, is a genre of entertainment where art does imitate life because we're making observations about society. That's what observational comics do. So your uh, demeanour and your musings mm-hmm. will be a reflection of what you can see. And so, yeah, if I deal with white comics that make flippant or offensive comments, you know, I think most black people have evolved to the point whereby we are able to make a distinction between ignorance and between out-and-out offensiveness or, like, the mm-hmm. intent of malicious intent. I say that because, like, I, mean, I did a gig in Salford and a guy came up to me and was like, oh, I love the stuff. Uh, can I buy you a drink? You remind me of my cousin. He's coloured as well. Now, there are some liberals who'd be like, he's using the word like coloured. Now, for me, I'm in Salford and this guy's offering to buy me a drink. The odds are, he, again, his interactions with yeah. black people are seldom. A racist person who does not like me is not going to offer to buy me a drink and sit down and drink with me. So, yeah, he may have used archaic nomenclature, but he's trying to endear himself to me. And, I, and, I, and again, I have enough of a brain to make a distinction between a man coming up to me and smiling and saying, may I buy you a drink? because I loved your performance, he's not someone that's trying to demean me racially. But yeah, it's like you said, yeah. it, goes, just go, it just goes back to the whole thing. And, and an opportunity there to, to, to educate him, to be exposed to black people that he wouldn't normally exactly. be exposed to and exactly. have that conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. And have the, conver- and have the conversation. He can, he can now pick the surface and pick my brain and now we've built a rapport. He leaves with a bigger understanding, as do I. Because if I was less educated of the lack of awareness, racial awareness that Ameri- uh, uh, British people have, I'd have been like, he fucking said coloured and I would have gone mental, but I'm aware he's probably been deprived of any kind of reference point mm. or any opportunity for conversation. So then I can indulge that. And so the, going back to the uh, previous question, sorry, it's, it's like with me in terms of my material, 
is that I was aware of all of this state within the UK because I'm an 80s baby. So I'm aware that for a long time, there's not been any reference points. So a lot of my material is not supposed to be patronising, but I have to almost introduce a very rudimentary understanding of uh, black British life to people who are otherwise, otherwise unaware. Not only that, I also have to be aware of the fact that, as I said, I'm aware of the suggestion, how subject to suggestion other black Britons are. Because while I may live in London, I'm, I am spoiled for cultural yeah. indicators and reference points. I live in South East London. My family are from Grenada. A lot of Grenadians in South East London. A lot in Bedford. A lot in Huddersfield. I know that because I've been there. Whereas, like, when I, used to, I listened to Dizzy Rascal speaking, he's like, I never left my uh, council estate because yeah. I ain't got family outside of London. So I don't really travel that much. At the same time, you know, there are black people who, through the merit of maybe for educational reasons, economic reasons, or just because it looked nice, who have lived in places like Middlesbrough or Norwich or, you know, Aberystwyth, where yeah, yeah, yeah. you wouldn't think there are black people there. Even though their cultural experiences are going to be vastly different to mine, it's not invalidated just because they don't get, have rice and peas every yeah. Sunday or get their hair cut at a black barbershop. Because they, just because they don't do that yeah, yeah. doesn't mean they're any less black than I am. So I've had to also craft material which is nuanced about the black British experience, but not so London-centric or not so, you know, culturally nuanced that a black dude that's grown up in Norwich who has the only black of black people he knows are his family... He still needs to feel it's accessible and that what my narrative can still reflect his experience. Because otherwise, if he sees me being like, well, you're not a real black person if you don't eat rice and peas, bruv. Now yeah, he feels yeah. like he's been isolated. So, so a big part of what I had to do was be aware that one of the reasons why African-Americans are able to opine so well on the experience is that the African-American identity is a recognised one. And under that umbrella, you may have Caribbean-Americans, West African-Americans, Haitian, well, Haitians-Americans as well. So there is a litany of people that come under that banner. Black British is not really a term used intrasocially amongst other black people. Like, if I talk to my friend and his parents are Nigerian, we don't really say, I'm black British. So we are at a stage where we, don't, we need to have a galvanised identity first. And then we can start being able to relay our uh, nuanced experience. So a big part of what I had to do was be like, I need to pick stuff that's still nuanced and black people yeah. in London can feel what I'm saying and black people in Manchester can feel what I'm saying. But if you're the one black person in the North, you're that one mixed race person that lives in bloody um, in Ireland or you live in Cork or even, and which is a historical problem, if you are from the black trans community or from the black LGBT or the black LGBT plus community, you do not feel marginalised or you don't feel like an yeah. outsider to this narrative. So I've been doing comedy almost 10 years, but really I'm just trying to introduce it uh, black british life and the black british journey to an entirely new audience but i'm trying to make sure that it is nuanced whereby we do deal with the intersectionality of black feminism and we don't seem opposed to that and we don't have and none of my narrative is rooted in uh you know european paternalism paternalism mm -hmm. or like judeo-christian belief because i i am trying to recognize that there is now a new black face in britain there are second and third generation black britons who do not know where they their family have come from in the caribbean yeah. they have no real connection to it their biggest experience yeah. is their black British one. So we need to create a narrative and an aesthetic which supports that so that they're not growing up being like, well, there's no one on TV that's like me, so I don't even know how I'm supposed to act yeah, yeah, or who yeah, am I yeah. really. It's being conscious of trying not to alienate people, but the instant thought would be, oh, you're trying not to alienate a white audience, but it's just as important to not alienate the black members of the audience who don't necessarily have the same black history or cultural references as you do and that's yeah. exactly 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 and also and also like i don't take credit away from white audiences well again one of the privileges of a white audience is that you have the breadth of experience like 
because of the merit of whiteness, you're able to travel and go on gap years and go in places where you don't have to think about any kind of impending mortal danger. So you have a much broader palette yeah. to absorb anything new. So I can talk about this stuff, and because any white people, ha- are, they're not limited by a pattern of thought on the way they should think, as long as he's good and yeah. he's funny, yeah. we'll listen. And if there's and like with any kind of artist, as long as there's mutuality into one's what he's saying. He, so he talks about love. Well, I know what love is because even though I'm white, because in the grand scheme of things, really, as I said, race is a construct. So what I talk about may begin on a very superficial level because most of the judgments made about me are going to be superficial when I come on stage. That's why so many comedians, when they come on stage, they go, I know what you're thinking because they have to deal with the superficial judgments being made about them first before they go into their stream of consciousness. And for me, it's the same principle as well. I'm aware of what people will think about when they see me. So then I guess I'm at a stage now where I can kind of subvert that and it's more working towards that mutuality. And I think that is really, as an artist and with observational comedy, to me, that's the apex of it, is when you transcend all of the nuance, all of the musings you have about the superficial, like, well, what black life is like versus what black British life is like versus what white life is like. Because really, once you transcend the skin, all of our urges and all of our inclinations are all very similar. Everybody wants to be able to eat every day, have water, be able to be loved, be validated, be cared for, have attention if you have a family, whatever your biological inclinations are, we all have them. And so what observation really is, is is transcending the five senses and it's more about, yeah, those kind of more metaphysical observations that we have. Because we all dream, you know, we all have angst, we all want to be, we we will have our dreams. So really, once you get to the point of opining on those things, there's no reason why you can't identify with anybody else. And that's indicated by the fact that when you hit the mark, people laugh. And laughter has no language. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, identifying with with other people is kind of a key part of your podcast. And I'm a big fan of the podcast. I really in, in, enjoyed coming on. I picked it recently when I was asked of the podcast that are, I appreciate it, man. have been getting me through lockdown and stuff like that. What kind of made you start it? It's Dane Baptiste questions everything. And the point is that you have a guest on who normally wants to put forward an, an idea or two and you put forward an idea or two and you just have a discussion. Yeah. And it feels... The thing I love about it is it feels like a safe place, a safe Absolutely. discussion point, which, as you touched upon earlier, isn't always the way in society. We're so quick to say, oh, that man used the word coloured, therefore yeah. we need to attack him we need to let him know all this kind of thing rather than go all right actually i can appreciate why you think exactly. that's acceptable because of where you're from why would he say it? Yeah, let's exactly. discuss why it might not be and yes yeah, so what was the, the motivation on the podcast and how have you found that as a as a journey as such because there's going to be some things that come in that you're not an expert on there's going to be some things that come in that you feel you are and you learn other things yeah. How is that as an experience? It's, it's the best one for me. It's yeah, yeah. It's basically leaving myself open, uh, you know, to learn and you know, and to observe that same kind of and reciprocate the same thing. It's it's uh, exactly as you said. That was the best example. Is that rather than me just make presumption and give power over to my own angst and you know whatever built-in aversions I have to you know my interactions with white people and almost having a paranoia to expect a racial faux pas to come along. It's more. Why would he say something like that? Even though he's so friendly. So the idea of the, the podcast is that, like I said, when we talk about all these issues, where it's discrimination about African society, a large part of them all, I believe, stem from a lack of uh, human responsibility. It's much mm-hmm. easier for you to give over your power to someone or something else, like an institution or an ideal, 
rather than take responsibility for your own life. And, you know, again, this is something that's manipulated. This tendency of ours is manipulated through identity politics. So the idea of the podcast is literally, like, as I said, it's just to uh, encourage a state where rather than people give over their power to previous existing ideas and notions, it's just to question it. At least then if yeah. you question it and the explanation, you enjoy the explanation, then it makes, it, then your beliefs are validated. Because really belief yes. is not a real thing. Belief is attached to the ego. People need to yeah. believe something in order for them to thrive. Sometimes people need to believe, they need to believe that my husband is a good person for this marriage to work. I need to believe that they're faithful for it to work. I need to believe for that person to love me so I can continue behaving the way I behave. Because questioning things means you have to start beginning to go and you need to start analysing and scrutinising, you know, the, your own reality. And I always yeah. encourage that because I, I believe that a lot of my awakening and, you know, moving to becoming an artist came from the fact that I was questioning my existence and saying, like, yeah. you have to go to work and earn money. But why? So we can take care of my kids. But why? So they can go to school. So why? They can get a job. So I'm supposed to love these children unconditionally, but I'm going to sentence them to the same lifestyle that has deprived me of so much joy. But I love these kids. Yeah, so, yeah, why yeah, would, so why yeah, would yeah. I... If I love my children... What, at what point am I going to say to them, you just have to have dreams, all right, no more dreams, go and get a normal job. Yeah. No no parent who really wants to love their kids wants to have that conversation, but we never ask yeah. why we create this state for our kids. And for me, it was yeah. just like, you know, I, as I said, the, the big part of the podcast was just, I just truly believe if people begin with the questioning of their reality, that's how they begin the first step in trying to change it. And it's, it's, it's so important now, because again, I seem to, every time anything important comes up on the podcast, I come back to the fact that social media is to blame for all the negatives of it, but it, it really is a lot of the time. Absolutely. But social media has made this this tribalism and defensive kind of culture where we don't want to question everything. We want to win a conversation. Yeah. And conversations sh- shouldn't be a competition. Arguments can't be um, won because an argument can't be yeah. won because an argument is just these exchange. Like I said, that's the exchange of those beliefs and those egos that's yeah. rooted in it. You're going to argue about something if you believe in it and no one can change your mind. The only thing you can do to combat an argument is the presentation of facts. And this yeah, is yeah, why yeah, yeah. you've seen with social media and with some of the worst ideologues and demagogues on, on, in social media like Donald Trump, they keep reintroducing terms like fake news and alternate facts. Mm-hmm. Because then if they reduce the efficacy of, pre- of presenting facts in an argument, you can't challenge them. Because yeah. they can say, I did this. And they can say, well, this statistical evidence proves you didn't do this. Say, so ah, it's yeah. fake news. So like yeah. I said, you encourage a culture whereby people will have their beliefs because their beliefs support their ego and they support their reality. But if you challenge them, they're like, oh, no. And, you know, the biggest example of that has been this catalyst for Black Lives Matter. People were certain that the the brutalising of black people was a result of their own criminality and their resistance to police. But we've all seen a man be killed in public by being asphyxiated for eight minutes. It's unavoidable. So that's why you've seen this massive change in consciousness of people being like, I really thought it was them. But very clearly, it can't possibly be them. Yeah. So yeah, it's that's, and that's yeah. why it's this one question. But again, it becomes the it becomes the complete avoidance and manipulation of, of, of facts. Again, I saw a post the other day that really summed it up nicely, just by saying, "Just so you know, even if someone's guilty, the police aren't meant to exactly. kill them." Because again, the argument always becomes, "Yeah, but he's got a history yeah. of this, or he's done this, or done that." But you've watched a video and he's unable to defend himself, and they've knelt on his neck for eight minutes. It's like. It doesn't matter if he's innocent or guilty. This, Again, their job, they're not judge exactly. dread. They're, 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 they're exactly. police officers. Not only that, you didn't know that when he was being killed because it was never spoken about. Yeah. And, if, and, and if the officer felt that way, 
when this happened on the first day, 24 hours, he could have had a press conference and said something. The second day, he could have done a Snapchat because yeah. social media is available to everyone. He could have done that. He could have done a Snapchat. Mm-hmm. He could have turned himself in. So those are not the actions yeah. of someone who feels that they are doing their job. And further to the point, the fact is that Dylan Roof killed nine people in a church and he was apprehended with two yeah. automatic rifles without any violent incident. Anders Brevik mm-hmm. committed the worst massacre seen in Western Europe since World War Two in Norway and he was apprehended alive yeah. and he's still alive yeah. so you know yeah. Slobodan Milosevic was a war criminal in Serbia and he got to kill himself so even yeah. then again yeah. there's no factual basis for what you're saying yeah 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 of course well I mean we've covered a lot of big topics and heavy topics here and I'm going to wrap things up with the complete opposite of that I love myself a bit of House of Games, oh, mate. Me too. That's the best. I, 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 I think it's cracking, and I really enjoyed you on it. Again, it's it's weird. I don't know how no one has come up with the idea of game shows are fun, and episodic TV is fun. So an episodic game show that over the week you're competing and there's a winner at the end, that's the most fun. How, how was that to go on as, and be part of and to, and to as dominate? Fun, as fun as, as it know, looks. Let's put as it. fun as it looks. It's as fun as <laughs> yeah. it looks. I don't know what it is, but Richard Osman is like the Midas of Daytime TV. There's, just, there's really something is. about his cadence, his friendliness, his smile. You feel like you're in good hands. And yeah, it definitely helped me to have fun. Yeah. And you know what? I really enjoyed it. Uh, the domination, the secret is I reveal is that like, you know, the word smash is basically like puns. It's a pun off. So that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, how I was yeah, able yeah, to make yeah. a, any kind of deficit at the end is that like, you know, and honestly, every time it's the word smash or whatever, it's always the yeah. comedian who's killing it because that's that's the you you that's work right, in word words, play. words you are your go. thing, and comedy and cadence and timing and putting things together. J- J- James A. Caster was similar on that. He'd lose every round leading up to that, and then he'd win yeah, the whole day because the, the word smash would come and go, bang, 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 bang. But yeah, it's really fun. Um, it's an amazing idea. I've uh, been able to meet some amazing people just being on the show and stuff as well. And uh, yeah, it, it just it yeah, just really makes for a nice yeah. environment, man. So I really hope that you get a chance to get on there, man. Uh, you'd be great. I yeah, love really that. Fun. Yeah, I'll be all over that. So, so, so what's ahead? As said, Sunny D was the first, as you said, the first black-led show in in in, in twenty years. 20, Thirty years? 20, 20 did you say now, yeah, yeah. twenty years on the BBC? And I think. We are at a key point where we're looking at representation on and off screen, which isn't where we've looked before. It's always been, is there a black character in EastEnders? It's not been, is there a black writer exactly. on EastEnders? And you know what I mean? These things should be across the board. It shouldn't be, here's the special, here's the black hour, here's their show. We've given them their show, they're represented. As a, as a distinction, you start thinking, well, why why are they separate that's weird so again yeah. it just drives that division so I think yeah what's next for me is so far as like there's a number of different development projects I'm kind of working on um, that deal with some of these issues but I think yeah it's like you said um, I um, ch- try to offer uh, my services in a more consultative role for like other comments yeah. as I said because you know there are a yeah. lot of black creatives who are massively talented but like I said because there's been this lack of industrial competence may not necessarily know how to make their craft translate to larger white audiences within the way they normally consume media but um so i'm always trying to help out with that and i'm just kind of building on that as well the podcast again provides that and that's important i said you 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 can't uh, you can't downplay how important that is because that's what representation is it's not it's the same with i said a wonder woman Mm -hmm. it's not about just having a strong female lead it's about having flawed females different kinds of exactly. all, all these different things and similar with 
black culture, it's not about going, oh, you can have your program over here. Yeah. Here you go, have the big nasty show, and we'll leave you there to, to, exactly. to appeal got, to got, the got, black yeah, community. You've got a big nasty show, but, but, but my sister is in her 40s. She's not, she doesn't dislike big nasty, but she's in her 40s. She's not into, yeah. She's not going to yeah. watch that. In, in the same way that, like, you know, if you're a white dude of a certain age, you might watch Top Gear, but you're not going to watch Fast and Furious. You're both still interested in yeah. cars, though. So, yeah, I just think yeah, it, is, yeah, it just yeah, needs, to yeah, build, yeah, needs to build on that uh, diversity within this new era of diversity, and you have so many more range of black archetypes because what will happen is if that's done in courage and that's done then it will become incidental and people need to make that distinction because it's like Grey's Anatomy loads of white women watch that but that's written by a black woman they don't have have to pick up on it because there's like uh, Louis C.K. used to write on Everybody Hates Chris I'm not going to be like well he won't know anything about it you know just if you have people that are prepared to do this research and interact and get over the egos then with any kind of art like I said art is about transcending the physical and so we just need to be given that same opportunity to do the same because, you know, you look at everything else that uh, black people done, it seems to work fine for white people, you know. You can look at the music that Adele sings or, you know, uh, Ed Sheeran sings or Amy Winehouse. Yeah. These are songs, music that come from black people. It's still equally communicable and viable when white people do it and it's like vice versa. So, you know, we, we, there's, there's been no arena of human existence whereby integration has led to a standard suffering. I love that. Yeah, that's perfect. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate you, man. I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad, I'm glad to be here. I'm I'm, I'm glad we got it done in the end and I I recommend people go and check out. Again, the great thing about Dane Baptiste questions, everything is... The the title will always have a lead question and the guest in. So you've got two things to yeah. t- to scroll through and look go, for. Go am it. I a fan of that guest or am I a fan of that topic? You, it's, exactly. it's not a, a, a one or the other. So, yeah, thank you for your time. And, yeah, we'll talk no, soon, absolute man. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks joy. again, brother. Yeah, man. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Dane Baptiste. I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. Um, I felt educated at the end of it all, and it was a wonderful time. As mentioned in the intro, go and give the Mum and Mama podcast a little listen. I think you will enjoy it. And the recent, as said, the the 15-minute parenting one was one that, honestly, I went into thinking, this is going to be a load of hippie nonsense or psycho babble. And I went in really sceptical, and I was blown away by so much of it. It's really good. So, yeah, give that a listen and consider, if you're listening on Acast or if you want to just go on to Acast, consider giving the podcast a little tip if you can afford to do so. Thank you for tuning in. I will be back next week uh, with more podcast goodness. See you in a bit. Bye-bye.